We're turning to Psalm 93 this morning, and as you uh, turn to that page in our worship uh, bulletin, it can be found on page 498. Um, the good news today is that the Lord reigns. Uh, the Lord, Yahweh, is king. And my job as a preacher is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, and this pretty much sums it up. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. The God who made you, who made the world you live in, is ruling and reigning over it now, despite any and all appearances to the contrary. Don't believe your lying eyes when the world appears as a chaotic place. Even uh, those who struggle from great tragedies in Hawaii, the Lord reigns. He cares you and loves for you. And there's nothing in all creation that can stand between you and his love. So that will be the message of this uh, psalm in the coming weeks. It's a rather simple affirmation. But from Psalm 1 and 2 all the way to the end of the Psalter, Psalm 150, this is really the heart and soul of the Psalms. This book that teaches us how to praise God when things aren't going as we want them to, as we expect them to, focuses on this truth, that the Lord is reigning in heaven. When the devil whispers in your ear that God doesn't love you, that you're a miserable sinner... That if you just took control of your own life and just did what you wanted to do, you'd be more happy. God does love us. And He has promised that in His Word. He is very trustworthy. So that's our message today. Let's go ahead and rise now for the reading of Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Join me now for our prayer for illumination. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words. For thy name's sake. Amen. Well, our outline this morning can be found in the worship bulletin. Uh, First, the Lord reigns from of old and forever with no variation. Second, the Lord's royal power in creation is greater than the power of the sea. And third and finally, the Lord reigns in our hearts through his holy word. Well, as many of you already know, I I spent the last 10 days or so traveling halfway around the world to South Africa uh, to visit and speak at a conference at one of the newest URC churches, the Reformed Church of the Southern Suburbs in Cape Town. And on Tuesday, after uh, visiting a Bible college for a chapel service, 
our host, uh, Reverend Simon Yost, took us on a drive down uh, to the Cape of Good Hope. This is about an hour and a half drive on a peninsula south of uh, Cape Town itself. And this was one of the most uh, stunning oceanfront cliffside drives I've ever been on in my entire life. It compares uh, favorably uh, with Maui, where I have had the privilege of visiting and seeing some gorgeous coastline. It compares favorably with the central coast of California, including Big Sur. I mean, it was just shockingly, powerfully glorious. It was visually stunning. And we were, uh, to to sort of add to the excitement, we were warned, A, to not feed the baboons, because they're very dangerous. I never saw a baboon. I'm very disappointed. Uh, But also the threat of wild ostriches, which fortunately did not attack, but we did see an ostrich farm. At the very end, you're driving out on this tiny spit of land, and there's water on all three sides around you, just the full horizon of the South Atlantic Ocean. And we took a walk along the cliffs to get a view of the point itself, the Cape of Good Hope, which is not quite, but almost the further, further southern point of the continent of Africa. And um, the power of the sea, the ocean, and providentially, as I was thinking about Psalm 93, was all around us. It was seemingly limitless. For the eye, Um, the wind was blowing like 40, 50 miles an hour. So we were kind of about to be knocked over on this whole uh, little hike. The smell, the sound, the power just assaulted every sense. You could taste it in the air. And just thought, maybe you've had a similar thought on, on the beach or an ocean or a waterfall. That cape is out there now, just sort of an incessant, eternal, pounding, raging of the waves. This is the image that's at the heart of Psalm 93. In verse 3, it's uh, marked out by threefold repetition. The The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods... Lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. The heart of this psalm is this comparison of one of the most awesome, powerful sights that we can experience in nature. The power of the sea. And the psalmist is driven from the depths of the ocean up to the heights of God's glory. It's a fitting expression of of the finitude, the fragility of man. We're so small, so vulnerable. The sea, especially for ancient Israelites, was chaotic. It was threatening. It was terrifying. The psalmist conjures this image, this memory, to lift our eyes up. God holds the sea in his hand. He established it. He established all things. And when we consider that this God has promised to be our God, has revealed himself to us, that his word to us, his royal decrees as king, might be trusted above all else, there's no more comforting thought. So that's our thought today, our meditation. We pray you could all take from this place that the Lord reigns. And I want to look first at at this opening verse that really emphasizes, and the whole psalm emphasizes, that the Lord reigns from of old and forever. That the Lord's reign is unchanging, unvarying. Our song opens with a dynamic image. 
of the Lord as our King. And this opening statement, the Lord uh, reigns, could really be translated a number of, number of different ways. The Lord reigns, in other words, He is exercising His rule. He's governing. It could be sort of more of a, a statement of fact. The Lord is King. That's also a good translation. Or one translation, uh, another one, is that the Lord has become King. In other words, this is an announcement of a royal enthronement ceremony. And this last option really recommends itself because of the lines that follow. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as His belt. I thought you said He was strong, right? But the image here is very much an earthly image. This may be describing an enthronement ceremony. The moment at which a new king is being installed and coming into his position of power and authority. We recently had a British monarch enthroned, King Charles. Um, I know Liam will be glad to hear this. I must confess, as a good American, I watched not a second of the official proceedings. I'm anticipating that, Liam. So I don't know for sure. But I know from background knowledge uh, that just royalty in general... Uh, that there was a lot of energy and time spent on, on clothing Charles in official regalia, right? The images we have of kings from children's storybook with a great purple robe. The pomp and seriousness of such events, every last stitch has meaning and significance. And there's an aspect here that, yes, Yahweh has always been king, but he is coming into his power. Every earthly king we know becomes king at some point. So the analogy breaks down, right? But the moment of becoming king is a proclamation of where his authority comes from. So it helps us understand how the Lord, our God, our creator God is king. If we think of its beginning, its inauguration. Some think even that there may have been a regular annual festival. There's not a lot of evidence for it in the Old Testament but that ancient Israel celebrated the enthronement of Yahweh. Even as Psalm 2 celebrates the enthronement of Israel's king, Yahweh's own son, his representative here on earth. As for me, Yahweh says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. David, the earthly king, the Davidic line, was to be God's son here on earth, representing his power. Psalm 2 is an expression of the, the Lord reigns through his anointed. Indeed, this was Adam and Eve's calling in the garden. They were to be king and queen of creation. King and queen. I think I can still talk. Psalm 93 affirms the Lord still reigns. And we, we can't read this psalm without remembering what's happened in the first three books of the Psalter. Yeah, we've taken ten years to get through it. But this earthly kingdom has failed. People are coming back from 70 years of exile. There's no Davidic king anywhere. And Psalm 93 says, Yahweh, who set David on his throne, is still king. He's still ruling and reigning. And this belt that he girds himself with is a belt of strength. There could be armor involved here. In this age, in this epoch, kings went out to war, to fight. 
So Yahweh is girding himself with a belt fit for battle. So in this simple statement that opens this psalm, the Lord is king, Yahweh is king, there's a dynamic idea. Yahweh himself is ascending his throne. He's becoming king. He's expressing his power in the world. Establishing his reign over and against all his enemies, any who dare oppose him. And yet in the midst of this dynamism is one of the central truths of praise. Is that this rule and reign of Yahweh is from of old and everlasting. This theme that's clearly stated here in verse 2 is picked up and repeated as well in verse 5. Relating to another aspect of Yahweh's powerful reign. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The pronouncement of the king, his speech, is a royal law which is fixed, cannot be changed. The eternal, unending reign of the Lord isn't spoken here in philosophical terms. This isn't Aquinas or Aristotle. Rather, it's tied to a very concrete act, the creation of the world, the establishing of it. The world in which we inhabit, which we know, in which we live, the sum total of our experience points us toward its maker. We have been established by him to live and dwell in his being. We know in our experience it shall never be moved. Those waves are still crashing upon the shore. Maybe you have a a home beach, a home river. It keeps running. The sun will come up tomorrow. Right? This, the scriptures often point to the sun and the moon, these fixed rhythms, the seasons which God has established. And this world, the psalm tells us, is God's throne. It is his majesty, his power observed through the things he made. This is very much the argument of Romans chapter 1. We all know there is a God. We all know this world didn't come from nowhere. Nothing comes from nothing. Yahweh introduced himself to Moses. He said, who are you? He said, I am who am. I am the one, the only one who has always been. So right out of the gate, the psalm leads us to worship our creator God. He's more than a philosophical concept. He's a personal God. He's a king. He's ruling and reigning in the midst of his creation. And brothers and sisters, one important application here before we move on to the next point is that God is not a mystery. I had a 15-hour flight on Friday, and I was so bored, I watched this utterly godless pagan stand-up comic routine from HBO. I forget the guy's name. He happened to be Jewish, and he mocked Jesus. He mocked Christianity. I just thought about people who make their way through this world, strangers and aliens of God's grace and mercy. They say, we don't know. And then he told a whole story about how his his partner died and he saw a hummingbird and he thought she was in the hummingbird. He was so open to any shred of hope, to the end of life and the end of existence. God can be known. He is known. What a privilege and a joy is it for us to know and hear the voice of our creator God, the God who created the whole world, the whole cosmos. And this brings us really to our second point. Not just that God is the creator, 
that everything that we see, the power, the magnitude, the, the, the vastness of the cosmos is in his hand, but that his power is greater than that. It's a comparison. The world is Yahweh's throne, and we know God through the things he has made. And in verses 3 and 4, the Lord's work of creation is presented in mythical terms that would have been familiar not only to Israel, but also to her neighbors. The words we see here for floods and waters and sea are the names of gods of the neighboring nations. They personified these elements in creation and worshipped them as gods. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. You see the personification. The floods lift up their roaring. They're like the kings of the nations in Psalm 2 who, who rage against the Lord and His anointed. Mightier, though, the psalmist affirms, mightier than their thundering of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. The poet uses this threefold repetition of the floods lifting up their voice to, to personify the forces and powers of the world in which they live. The idols are raging against God. And they lift their voice. They cry out. Again, the image is the waves on a seashore. And verse 4 opens by comparing this great thundering sound made by the waves of the sea to the power and might of King Yahweh. King Yahweh, our royal Lord, is mightier than these waters. He is on high. Psalm 92, a couple weeks ago, called the Lord the Most High. The same term is used here. Proclaimed that He is on high forever. He is the king over all kings, over all gods. And the comparison here, again, in the mythical terms of Israel's enemies, is not merely to the sea and its waves. These are the Canaanite gods that have been defeated in battle. It is the roaring of pagan world, the raging of the kings of the earth. Let us burst our bonds apart and cast away their cords. In the power of the sea, Israel would have seen and heard these enemy gods. You see the crashing of those waves? Worship the God who controls that power. The storm, the lightning, the thunder. We see this in the book of Jonah, the fear that the sailors had of the sea. Maybe we can placate the sea by casting the sinner overboard. When I was at that Bible college in South Africa, a professor told a story about the beach right out in front of the college. It was on the ocean. And he used to go for a jog every day on the beach and finish his jog with a swim. And there was another woman, an older woman, about 75 years old, who used to go for a swim almost every morning out there on the beach. He'd see her. One morning he saw her and he went for his jog. And when he came back, there was a crowd there pointing out. And all that was out in the ocean was a swimming cap. She'd been consumed whole by a shark. The sea swallowed her whole, one of the beasts of the sea. He said, I was the last person to speak with her. And there are are shark spotters that sit on the hills watching for sharks so they can warn people to get out of the ocean. The pastor's son, Andrew, one of his classmates, a few days before I got there, was dragged out to sea by a riptide and died. He drowned. I kept hearing stories of death and destruction. It was was really kind of a, a crazy trip. But both of these stories had this image of of the sea of a a terrifying force. You can only imagine the terror that ancient mariners would have had in their tiny little creaky ships, which often didn't make their voyage successfully. Every year we traveled to Lake Tahoe to visit my mother. 
There's always people drowning every year in the lake. The sea holds the power of life and death. And so this raging, this chaotic force in the world is the force of fear. King Yahweh has defeated that fear. He is king even over the raging. He sets its bounds. He gathers the water together, makes dry land. Psalm 24 teaches the ancient belief that the earth is is founded on top of the seas. It's like there are these great pillars supporting it. And God established the world solid over the fluctuating, tumultuous sea. Psalm 65 tells us that God stills the roaring of the seas. And, of course, Jesus fulfills this in Mark chapter 4. And all the apostles are filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's a sign that he is the ruler and king over all creation. Psalm 89, he rules the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, he stills them. And the Psalms also portray the parting of the Red Sea and the deliverance of Israel from Pharaoh in the Exodus in terms of the defeat of this sea god, Yom. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Psalm 74. God, my king, is from of old. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. The sea is his, for he made it. We sang that in Psalm 95 this morning. Psalm 96. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Because God is king. Even the roaring of the sea, its raging, is under the dominion of Yahweh. Whatever the Lord pleases, Psalm 135 says, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in the deeps. The Lord's mastery over the sea, it is his, he has made it, demonstrates how great his power is. We cannot measure or fathom omnipotence. We can't really even project in our minds. But we can observe the sea, the ocean. We hear it. We see it. If you've ever been swimming and been dragged out a little bit by riptide, you know what it's like to be terrified, to be tossed by the waves. And the power of God is greater. That's what the psalmist confesses here. J.B. Phillips, a number of years ago, wrote a book entitled... Your God is too small. I've never read the book. It's one of those books you always see in used bookstores in the religious section, right? Your God is too small. But this was a very apt summary of Psalm 93. And in the modern world, the problem we really have is worth. The Puritans used to speak of, of practical atheists. People who said they believe in God but live as though he doesn't exist. Modern science has moved God to the margins. Well, maybe you pray to him. Maybe you seek comfort and spiritual guidance from him. But he's not really involved in in the world. We can explain all that with with laws and, and science. The God of the gaps has been banished to the margins. We sing these psalms because they teach us that our God is intimately involved in the whole created order. And is God over it. Even at its chaotic, broken worst, in the pole of a deadly riptide, in the teeth of a shark, the Lord is king. He is ruling 
and reigning. And he is king over everything that terrifies us, that discourages us, that wearies you. He is mightier, bigger, and stronger. And this Psalm 93 is traditionally connected to Psalm 92. Its, its Greek title actually says that it was sung on the Friday before the Sabbath. Psalm 92 was the song of the Sabbath. We seek our rest, our Sabbath rest, in the Lord who king and rules and reigns over all things. He is a powerful God, but he is a personal God. He loves us. And so the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is a time to reorient our lives around the true king, around the one who rules and reigns. And this brings us to our third and final point, this verse 5, which doesn't really seem to fit with the whole rest of the psalm. It kind of shifts gears a little bit. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Here, the thing, uh, here's the thing about kings. Our Belgic Confession of Faith talks about this. Every king must have subjects. He rules over someone or something. The Belgian Confession says the church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until its end as appears from the fact that Christ is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. Our king, Yahweh, speaks to us. He has royal testimonies, decrees. He issues royal pronouncements. Think about that for a moment. The creator God who fashioned and shaped that cape of good hope halfway around the world where the waves continue to crash and beat, is standing here before you this moment, speaking to you. He's appointed servants to proclaim His word to you, His promises. Do you hear Him? Can you trust Him? Of course you can. Jeremiah says, Your word is like fire. Your word is like a hammer breaking rocks. His word established the world. It can never be moved. His word to you will not fail. His promises cannot be broken. When life grabs at you, drags you down, He is there. When the sharks are circling, He is there. Isaiah 40 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The Creator God is a powerful God, but He is a personal God. He addresses us. The Lord's house, his dwelling place, is a fitting habitation for his holiness. We could also translate this for his holy ones. His house is a fitting place for you, his saints. The Lord's created all of creation as his throne, and at the center of it is his home where he dwells with his people. King Yahweh is a good shepherd. Kings in the ancient world were often portrayed portrayed as shepherds who guarded the flocks their people provided for them. He's the one who speaks to us in Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And the psalm closes. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A fitting way to prepare for the Sabbath. It is King Yahweh who makes provision, who spreads a table. Who welcomes us into his home by adopting us as his children. In glorifying the God who stills the raging of the floods, who defeats the rebellious sea, Psalm 93 praises King Yahweh who delivers us from sin and death. 
even as he delivered Israel from Pharaoh and slavery. We know that what he does when his eternal trustworthy word became flesh and dwelt among us. King Yahweh, the Lord, Kurios, is the Lord King Jesus Christ. In our New Testament lesson, which we read from Revelation chapter 19, you will notice that the, the voices of his saints are compared to the roar of many waters. The roaring of the rebellious waters have now all been converted and gathered to the foot of his throne. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! And quoting Psalm 93, For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The sea has been brought into the chorus of praise. And Psalm 93 is quoted here in reference to the Lamb who has made his bride ready. He has washed her, that he could bring her into his house, the dwelling place, so that it might be a fitting place for her. As he is robed in strength and might, you, brothers and sisters, who believe in Jesus Christ, are robed in fine linen, bright and pure. The righteous king has made his holy bride righteous as well. Brothers and sisters, John's vision of the apocalypse isn't some future Vision. It's happening now. He was lifted up into the heavenly places that he might see and report back what has been prepared for us. This is why the angel can say, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. His royal decrees are very trustworthy. King Jesus is ruling and reigning now. For as Paul writes to the Corinthians, For he must reign. Until he's reigning now and he must continue to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And death is the last enemy. He is greater than death. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The supper is today. The Lamb is present. The King, he has spread this table in the midst, in the face of our enemies, in the face of that last great enemy, death. And all who eat of this tree have nothing to fear. Your God reigns. Let's pray. Merciful God, your power is incomprehensible to us. It is mysterious to us and beyond our knowing. But we we see the powers of this world. We see them arrayed against us. We see disease. We see sorrow. We see fear. We see chaos. We see brokenness and even the power of the mountains, the oceans, the storm, the fires that destroyed the islands of Hawaii. Lord, we know that you are mightier than these forces, than these powers. And though they rage and roar and inflict great harm and real pain, Lord, you conquered death. And through this body and blood of Christ our Savior, We know that we too are heirs of eternal life in your son and that your word is trustworthy and true. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things as we come to this table. Amen.